Welcome to the Educate US podcast with your host, Nick Saveri, Dr. Stacy Schultz, and Dr. Patrice Fenton. Three former teachers and administrators talking about a wide range of topics happening in education. Time to educate us. Thank you, as always, for listening to the show and thank you for joining this conversation today. As always, some of the best ways to stay engaged with the program, very simple ways to do it. First and foremost, leave a five-star review on iTunes. And of course, the other way is email the show, which is sometimes even more easier for folks. TheEducateUSShow at gmail.com. Once again, TheEducateUSShow at gmail.com. Our conversation, our conversation today, look at me jumble that, focuses on perhaps one of the most important conversations that are happening in classrooms is around mental health. For some, it's around curriculum as it relates to social emotional learning. For others, as a teacher, it's about how do I bring into my classroom an additional form of care that people recognize that I see them as people. Um, Patrice, I'm going to go to you just for a second, just for a quick preface of the guest you have coming on. And then Stacey, we're going to come to you. Yeah. The, the conversation I think around mental health, it, 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 it brings up a, a few things for me and a lot of the things that um, our guest raised um, and she's a social worker. Um, and one is just stigma. I think there's a lot of stigma around the concept in general. I think also I want to name it. I think it's becoming less so um, today, as opposed to maybe when we were in the classroom, as an example. And, you know, obviously before that, but I still think there are some, uh, there's, there's a lot of stigma around it. And what she talked about specifically is around the idea of and I'm, what I'm hearing, maybe your guess um, as well, Nick, the, just the names themselves and what it conjures up for people and how sometimes those, those names or those titles don't really fit with what people have in mind and or with what those folks actually do in the profession. Um, so as an example, uh, social workers being associated with someone who comes and takes kids out of their homes, you know. Um, and it's not, and she was sure, uh, our guest, um, Sequoia, she was sure to name that and, you know, our, our, our listeners will hear about that. Um, and so I think what's happening is there's a great, great need. And I think SEL being in the schools now helps, but it then also just becomes another part of our alphabet soup, right? Like we, we need to really think about it as a core part of the work period. And that's what I'm walking away with. So I'm wondering what the implications are for teacher training, for principal training, for engaging parents, for destigmatizing thoughts around therapy and, you know, guidance counselors, social workers, et cetera. I really getting people to understand this is a necessity for, for all of us and especially for, you know, a lot of our marginalized populations. I'm really excited to have two cousins coming on the show uh, as we were preparing to get ready for the show. We were even talking about they're more than just cousins, they're sister cousins. Um, and one has been in the mental health and school setting for a really long time. And others kind of new into the mental health social worker role. Um, but it is really exciting to hear their take on just what schools are experiencing right now um, and what the opportunities can be um, for, for, as you were saying, Patrice, to really kind of shift how does that get more integrated 
meaningfully into, you know, training and then into classrooms so students can have those experiences um, that they, they need to be happening, right? Because as we know, learning is not just about the academic piece, it's the emotional piece as well. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. So I have the pleasure to be joined by Sequoia Ashley, who is a social worker in Minnesota. Sequoia, please take a moment to introduce yourself. Tell, a bit, tell us a little bit about your, yourself. Hello, my name is Sequoia Ashley. Um, I am currently a social worker. I've been a social worker now for about two years. Um, I got my degree from LSU. Um, so I have a master's in social work right now and I'm going for my clinical. Um, after all my supervision, everything is done. Um, I've been working in a school system for about 10 years now. So I started off as a special ed para. And then I moved uh, for the past like six years. I was a behavioral specialist. And then now I'm a social worker for the past two years. And the majority of my work has been with middle school kids. Middle school is my favorite. I was. Me uh... too. I say that. And some people are like. You rarely hear people that say middle school, but I'm like, really? I love middle school. They're the hardest to work with. I agree. They but are. I love middle school. Yeah. 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 I I don't know. It's just something about that that phase, that stage that I, yes. I enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. They're, 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 they're quite a bunch to say the least. Yes. <laughs> I like I like them. I like them. I was a special ed uh, teacher in middle school. Uh, I was in a self-contained classroom. So, and they... I say always, all the time, I may have said it on the show before, but that was by far my most enriching job yet. I, it's yeah. weird to even call it a job, you know, but being in yeah. with them was was a gift. It was a, it was a lot at the time, but in, in retrospect, mm-hmm. even it just, it gave me so much. Um, so talk to us about what led you to transition from being in the classroom to becoming a behavior specialist and then now um, uh, in social work. So um, when I got into the school system, I didn't really know what I was like going for. I was I originally I was going for nursing, to be very honest. I went into mm. the school system just looking for a job. I'm like, OK, I can be, a you know, a para teacher assistant. And then as I started working and then I was like, OK, it's something that I can do and I like it. But now I want to do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to a behavior specialist and I love being a behavior specialist. I loved the um, because I work with the entire school instead of just having my one-to-one, I work with the entire school and I built so many relationships and I was just good at working with the middle school kids. And then, um, I transitioned from nursing school and then I moved over to social work. Um, and then I, I love social work as well. I love what I do. Um, and I also, um, social work is just hit home for me because I was once in foster care. And mm. so it's like, I can connect with kids more. And it was just, I love like connecting on a different level with families and just a more personal relationship that you get as a social worker versus when you're a nurse and just like coming to the office and you go back home. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 
That's awesome. And I can see like a clear like through line from being a para behavior specialist and now kind of taking it yes. To, um, yes. another level. Um, what would you say? Well, wh why don't you tell us a little bit about what I just want to clarify because we try to be clear about language, you use the term one to one. So that I'm, I take it that means you are you you worked one on one as a para in um, yes. Yeah, so when you have a student that not a shared para, meaning they're on a certain level where they have to stay with the para all day. That's your student that you're assigned to that student all day. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's different levels. There might be some students who has a shared para. Some students like okay, he only needs a para in math class. He needs assistance there because he struggles in that class whether it's academically or behavioral wise and there are some students who needs a para all day right um so yes that was a one-to-one -one. so we know that there are a lot of misconceptions that exist or we kind of imagine right there's some misconceptions that exist around um social work field so yes we wanted, to, we wanted to see if you could speak to some of those misconceptions and what would you say to kind of like dispel them like well, yes, I have been dealing with a lot of misconceptions from the time I've started social work, even yesterday. Like <laughs> you, I think it comes from the, the stigmatism that you have around the word social work. Mm. And to be very honest, um, due to my own history and everything, I also had my own misconception until I became, you know, a social worker in the field in education. Um, social work is very broad, but when a lot of minority families think of social work, they think of CPS. They think of a social worker as only a person who come in the house and take their children. Mm. That is the main misconception that I get. And it's hard to connect with families and it's hard for even students to open up and parents to open up because they feel like I'm just there to get their information and to find a way to come take their kids from them when that is not the case. Um, if I call a parent about your child having truancy, if I call and say your child has an eating disorder I, or I feel like they have an eating disorder, can you take them to a pediatrician? Can you take them to a psychologist to actually get, you know, some help or see if they can get diagnosed? A lot of those parents feel like I'm trying to take their child away. That's not the case. A lot of times I'm just trying to help. But in minority families, due to the history that comes from social work, and that's the only thing that we see mm -hmm. and what we have dealt with in our own families and in our own communities, it's hard. It is very hard for me to allow families to trust me. It's hard to build trust. And so I try to um, let families know, like, I'm not here I don't want to, and social workers, we don't want your children. We don't want to take them. We want to keep them in the homes. Mm -hmm. And we're here to give you all the resources, the mental health, the physical health, emotional health. I I give therapy resources because I also, um, in my internship, I was a therapist for about, ooh, about eight, nine months. Mm -hmm. And so um, once I was no longer a therapist, I still recommended some um, students to that same therapist um, therapy office. And mm -hmm. so it's just, it's hard. And so I'm always breaking barriers with families. I'm always mm -hmm. trying to, I've had students when I go to class and introduce myself, like, Hey, you guys, I'm Miss Ashley. I'm new to the school. I'm a social worker. Kids will literally blurt out like, Oh, so you take kids from their moms. I'm like, Oh my gosh. And I was <laughs> like, no, 
I'm, I'm not here for that. I'm here to help you with your mental and emotional states, your behavior, anything that you need, anything you're dealing with, you can come talk to me. I'm even with families. I'm, I am not here. It's every day, every day I'm dealing with that. So hmm. it's hard, especially somebody that's coming from foster care. I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, I, there's a difference between, you know, being in foster care and living with family versus getting pulled from your homes and being sent to a group home or, or you know, living with strangers. Mm-hmm. I understand all of it. So it's, it's a lot, but I also feel like I can build connections faster because I do have that history. Mm-hmm. And I also, and because I'm a minority myself as a black woman in schools here in Minnesota, I'm always, you know, the only black woman mm-hmm. I'm always, um, even I'm always, most of the time I'm, I'm the, always the only black person in the school. Mm-hmm. And so that's another way that I connect with students, you know, representation matters a lot. It matters and matters and, you know, it's helpful. And I do feel like no matter where I go, it's easy for me to build relationships, mm-hmm. but no matter where I go, I, I'm going to go. I feel like I can be doing this for 35 years and I'm always going to have to break those, you know, mm-hmm. break down those walls and barriers because that stigmatism will always be there. Wow. That was so rich. There's so many uh, directions I would love for us to go. I-, I would love to ask a little bit more about your own experience. Just thinking about like, we talked a bit about like the professional side, like how you started as a para behaviorist specialist, mm-hmm. but as someone who came out of force care, I'm imagining that had something to do with your decision to get into social work. Can you talk a little bit about that? If that yes. is for you. Yes. And so to be very honest, the reason why I stopped doing nursing and going to um, social work wasn't due to foster care. It was due to nursing just being, it was hard for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Human anatomy class was a whole nother level Mm -hmm. for me. But then I said, okay, I want a career to where I want a more personal relationship. I want to help. Like, and so I was like, even since I was a kid, I'm like nurse, nurse, nurse. And I never thought of social work because, you know, I didn't know how broad social work was. Mm -hmm. So now um, I got into once I, you know, you got to do your interviews in the schools and every, I mean, at the colleges and they actually, why you want to do social work and everything to get into the program. And it was just like, I was like, I, I have the connection because of my own history and I want to help other kids. You know what I'm saying? I want to end the schools. Um, and so that's how I got into social work because I knew I wanted to help on a more personal level. Gotcha. And I'm a, I'm a super like empath. I'm always trying to help. I'm always that shoulder to lean on. So I was like, mm-hmm. okay, let me go into a field that I know I can thrive in mm-hmm. and, you know, have personal. So that's how I got into social work. Yeah. I, similarly, I always wanted to be a nurse midwife personally. That was my goal oh, forever and ever and ever. And then I was like, oh wait, I got to take like chemistry and stuff. Yes. <laughs> Count me out. Uh, that's where yeah. I <laughs> But then I ended up becoming a different kind of doctor, PhD. So, you know, there we yes. go. <laughs> um, so talk to us a little bit about like what, like a, a day in the life almost, like what might someone be surprised to know about the work that you do as a social worker? A day in the life, honestly, I have a schedule. I do my, um, I work with SPED kids. And so everybody in their IEPs, they have certain one-on-one time with a social worker. It can be 30 mm-hmm. minutes, twice a week, or once a week, depending on their needs. Mm-hmm. But um, 
that schedule does not go as planned because kids, especially in middle school, it's a crisis for they can break down. It's a lot of kids that might be dealing with depression. You're dealing with kids that are, you know, dealing with certain traumas. Um, so at the at any second, I have to stop what I'm doing and go deal with a kid that might be going through a crisis. Mm -hmm. And so in the midst of dealing with that kid, there's another kid. So I'm like, okay, it's just prioritizing your day mm -hmm. and your schedule never goes the way you want it to go. Mm -hmm. And so um, the day in the life is like, sometimes you can get a lunch and sometimes you have, you didn't sit down at your desk from the time you walk in. Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot. It's yeah. a lot. And it's a lot of trauma with these um, special needs kids. And it's always trying to build relationships, building relationships and trying to reach goals. You can feel like, okay, we're getting somewhere. He's mm -hmm. been doing good for the past two months. He's, he ain't walked out of class. He hasn't, you know, he hasn't broke down. He's not self-harming anything. And the smallest mm -hmm. triggers can mm -hmm. have them go all the way back. So then, you know, sometimes you reach those goals and sometimes it takes all year to reach a goal. And mm -hmm. so, Middle school is a lot. And, you know, they're also going through their own puberty. They're also dealing mm. with their own thoughts and emotions. And in that adolescent stage, it's hard. It is hard, hard. And so I'm always there just trying to let them know, like, I understand. Mm -hmm. Because I was also a difficult teenager. I was a very, the attitude, and I just can relate. So the day in the life is a lot. <laughs> Never know what you're going to get. <laughs> what you're going to get. That sounds about right, being in the school building, especially with middle schoolers and then doing the work yeah. that you do for sure. Um, I heard you mention uh, trauma, depression, things of that nature. And, you know, as I'm keeping track of like what's going on in the schools, reading articles and things like that, um, working with teachers, working with principals, et cetera. There's a lot of conversation around um, the impact of the pandemic, right? So yeah. I would imagine you were, were you a behavior specialist at the time of the pandemic? Yes, I was. Okay. Yes. Okay. So what have you seen, if anything, like any differences between how things were in schools before the pandemic versus after? Is it pretty much the same in your experience or what What has changed? No, I definitely think since the pandemic, things have gotten worse. Okay. And we have children who still wear masks and they're terrified of getting sick. And a lot of people in there, a lot of families suffered a lot in pandemic. People lost their families, grandparents mm -hmm. and anxiety is really bad with a lot of special needs kids. So the pandemic made that 10 times worse. Mm -hmm. Also, a lot of the special needs kids that were suffering from not being able to read, not being able like staying at home. And you also have parents who, you know, might not be able to help you because they're at work or might not be able to be as a, you know, a resource. It just makes everything harder. And also socially, that was a big, Thing. Like coming back into the schools, a lot of students suffered for building relationships. They don't know how to have friendships, how to deal with conflict, how to deal with somebody other than their siblings in their home for two years. Mm -hmm. That's a long time to be locked in your home and not having that social aspect. So now you have to teach kids how to deal with other people, mm -hmm. kids that are were already dealing with depression and now they're completely alone. It was it, and then now they're going back into the schools, and it is mental health. It got it's bad. It mm -hmm. got bad to where 
self-harming was even worse. Mm-hmm. It got worse to where we have students who can't even be at school. They've got, you know, when you get so you're afraid, you don't know what to expect anymore. A lot of kids, mm-hmm. especially ones that go from elementary and middle school, right? That transition is a lot. Yeah. And say you got two years in school and now you in eighth grade. You didn't miss sixth and seventh in middle school and you come back to school and you in eighth grade and you about to go to ninth. That's a big, that's a big jump. That's a big change. So it's now, it's, now I feel like you're going from elementary to Almost high school. Straight into high school, basically. Yes. Yeah. That's a big, that's a big change. And this, wow. they have missed a lot of social skills that they need in order to survive. It's just, it's hard. And yeah. if you got to keep trying to understand them and the, and where they came from and, yeah, that was a lot. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even think about that leap for some of them. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Going yeah. to middle school is hard enough. It is. It's so hard. And then you're asking them to go straight to eighth grade for a year and then yep. get straight into high school. Yep. That is a lot in and of itself. Take yeah. away the other things you just named. That that's tremendous. That really it is. is. It, that is huge. So what, given that, right, and the things that you're seeing and the, the issues that you're seeing that are just even worse now after the pandemic, what do you think schools really need to be doing that they're not right now? I really think a lot more mental health needs to be in the schools. And I think at this moment, a lot of, um, I think, grace for these kids, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I think we are expecting them to have certain skills um, that maybe we had when we were younger and things are so different now compared to when we were young. We did, it was most of a survival, but we didn't have more empathy and grace for the, for the kids. I think a lot of um, social skills and life skills need to happen. Mm. I think we have to really put time in to understanding the kids and understanding that some of these kids are even even in elementary. These are pandemic babies we got come, you know? So it's like the space that these, especially middle school, that they were in and understanding their mental health was terrible. It, the fact that none of these kids probably got therapy, none of these kids had anybody at home. Some mm-hmm. of these kids were trying to, some of these families, while parents, you know how they say, um, School is a safe pace for a lot of kids, yeah. especially ones that don't have food, ones that don't have, you know, parents that they can depend on or feel like they have a relationship with kids that are getting abused at home. They were locked in those spaces with in this unsafe space for two years. Mm-hmm. There are some kids who don't even want to go home. Kids who ball their eyes out before the, the summer is out. And now we're forcing them to stay at home mm. in spaces where they're being, you know, the worst of the worst is happening and we have no clue, you know? Right. And so now they're coming back to school and they're, they have to come back out that shell. It's, it's a lot. And I think we have to understand that these kids are, have been in these spaces and they don't know how to open up. They don't have any trust. And so a lot of these behaviors and actions that we're seeing, we have to break down walls and, and help them. And a lot of times it's hard because also being the only black person um, in the schools is hard when other staff members don't know how to do it. When you feel like it's a lot on you as the only black person in the school. 
to save so, all those minority students. Yeah. So, so this is something else that I'm interested in because I've done a lot of work in uh, teacher recruitment, particularly for black men. We're thinking about um, the state of teaching one that we're, we're going through a teacher shortage. So that's one thing just in mm -hmm. And then two, the fact that um, most of the teachers in our schools are not teachers of color, right? Yes. So curious about what's the context of your school? Are you teaching in a school where the students are majority black and brown or what is the makeup? And then what's, no. the, what's the makeup of the staff? In so the schools that I'm at now and the schools that I have been at mm -hmm. um, are, it's a little diverse, but most of them, um, student-wise are white. Okay. And the students are more diverse, but when it comes to staff, it's predominantly white gotcha. at every single school. And the only way you will get um, more minorities in the school is if you go to urban areas. Mm, okay. And that's where, so say like North Minneapolis, mm -hmm. South Minneapolis, um, those areas is when you have more black men in the schools and I keep telling every school that I go to I'm always asking like can you please hire more minorities I don't care if it's a, a Hispanic man a black man like we need more men in the schools as well because mm -hmm. even though I'm a black woman boys are going to respond to the men differently than they respond to me mm -hmm. of course women are more nurturers mm -hmm. but they're they need that that figure that male mm -hmm. figure in their lives is is yeah I'm always the only black person. And then it always feel like um, what a lot of, um, I will say admin do is mm -hmm. try to push those hard kids. They feel like it's too hard for them towards me. And even though I don't, I don't have a problem working with them because I want those kids to feel safe because of course they're not going to feel safe with you because they don't, you don't look like them. You don't have the same experience that they're going through. Right. Um, I'm okay with that, but I also feel like you need to be a safe space for them. I don't, you yeah. have to be in a relationship with these minority kids. And that's the problem that we have in these schools is that our black and brown babies don't feel safe. They don't feel welcome. And they're always getting sent out the classrooms. Mm -hmm. They're always, they always getting the worst consequences. They're always, and it's because you, there's a, um, cultural wise, they don't understand our black and brown kids. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of things are taken to the next level when it shouldn't be. Well, Sequoia, clearly we could keep going on and on and on. I know, right? I, <laughs> I enjoy talking with you so much. Um, as always on our show, we like to invite our guests to share with folks how people can follow you on any social media platform so they, in case they want to keep in touch. Yeah. So if you don't mind sharing if you'd like. Yes. So my social media, um, whether it's Facebook or Instagram, and I, I model. So my Instagram huh. is mostly my model page, but you still can reach me on there um, and Facebook. So it is my first and last name. Something okay. simple. So it's S-E-Q-U-O-Y-A underscore Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y. So just Sequoia underscore Ashley. And then on Facebook is just Sequoia Ashley. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time. And thank you on behalf of all of the young people and families that you serve. Your work is... Uh -huh. Thank you. Invaluable. Thank you. I, 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 my hat, my heart goes out to you. Seriously. Yes. And I um, am so, I'm happy that they finally reached out because I was nervous about coming to the pocket. Like, am I going to be able to hold it in? <laughs> I am so happy. Like, and I just want you to know when I say across the board, 
you guys had us. So, so grateful. You guys are working towards something amazing. And I hope you continue to get all the funding you need, everything that you need, because it's, it's going to keep growing into something amazing. I'm happy. I'm excited for you guys. Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. You know, it's it's always funny because whenever I get to, I don't often introduce guests. Most of the time, my colleagues have done that a lot, Stacey and Patrice. You know, and on when I'm on the other show at Can We Please Talk, Mike does all of that. So today, I get the rare opportunity to do so. But more importantly, I do it for someone I've known, and we were texting about this a little while ago, almost 20 years. We're debating if it's 2005 or 2006 that we met. I have known her from a previous walk of life at a place whose name we won't necessarily mention on the show, but a place that we both had spent many a year. Um, but above all else, a friend uh, who also happens to share the birthday of the same day that I went on my first date with my now wife uh, and was the person I first texted, you know, when I did say how the date went. Um, she is the person I text for every bad date I observe publicly and vice versa. Uh, she is a school counselor, which is not necessarily the most important part to me, but for the sake of this episode, it certainly is important as we have this conversation, as we're talking about the role of mental health and our awareness of it in school. With that, I turn over to my to my guest today, Jane, who is a guidance counselor working currently with middle school students, but has also had experience with high school students. Jane, thank you. Thank you for joining our show. You're welcome. And might I say, we do not really prefer the term guidance counselor anymore. It's a little bit more specific. We're going school counselor, but that's okay because when we grew up, that's what they were called. They were called guidance counselors because that's literally what they did. And 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 you even sent that to me in a text. So shame on me. But as a, as a school counselor, let's begin there. From, you know, oftentimes when we think of the role of teachers, it can sometimes feel a little more clear in terms of the work that's done within a school community, but shifting over to the role of a school counselor, what would you do? What, what is that defined as? So we're providing mental health support for students, but not in the way that a therapist does in like a scheduled weekly meeting for an hour at a time here and there. We're providing support for the day-to-day -day struggles of school life. So it's you know, getting a bad grade on a test or struggling to focus in class, or maybe like we got into an argument with our parents that morning and we're struggling to just be in a present space. So school counselors are available to students pretty much all the time. I mean, obviously, you know, within reason, but we're there to support the kiddos and their immediate mental health needs to help them get through the day or the week or whatever. But when it comes down to more structured therapy than school counselors would refer out. We would refer to a community reach therapist within my area um, or somebody outside of the building if that's possible as well. So we kind of would communicate with the families that, hey, wait, maybe we think that the student could benefit from more structured therapy as opposed to a school counselor who is there in the school. But at the end of the day, you know, once summer hits, once breaks hit, the students don't have access to us in the same way that they would a therapist. So it's slightly different. You know, when we had this conversation about mental health and it seems like 
we've had it in the school setting for for a while, but it also lives in the professional space too, where we focus you know, nationally, even globally on what it means to be more in touch with mental health. But in your assessment at a school level, now, obviously you've worked in individual buildings, but you're in the field. What is your read about the way as a nation, we talk about mental health as it relates to students versus the reality of what we're prepared to do. And what I mean by there is, you know, the role you have in school, obviously, but also, you know, in your experience, with your school, what you've heard from the district, what you know nationally, are we giving it enough credence as we do or are really giving it the emphasis that it deserves? Or does it feel as though it's still taking a backseat to academics and other components that often come more top of mind when we think of school? I think it is definitely dependent on districts and individual buildings for sure. But I feel as though, especially in my district, in my building, the counselors are given a lot of respect and a lot of credence on what we can and cannot do. And, you know, we're expected to come up with certain curriculum for students and things like that, that is social, emotional, social, emotional based learning. Um, We have access in my building to several different programs that we put out through our advisory curriculum. And I've worked in schools, I've worked in several different schools, and I've worked in some charter schools and some district schools. And I think there's definitely a difference as to what is available within district level based off of money, based off of resources available within the community, and then also what families are willing to put into it. So there's definitely a little bit of a cultural barrier at times where families think, well, no, my kid's there just to get an education and they don't need this like other stuff that comes into it and that's getting in the way of their education and then other families feel differently. So it definitely is dependent family by family as to how well it's received. But I think overall, especially where I am right now, we are really working hard to make sure that students' mental health needs are met because we're recognizing that if they are struggling, if they're dysregulated, if they have high anxiety, it doesn't matter that they're in the classroom all day they're not going to be able to focus. They're not going to be able to pick up what's going on if they can't just regulate themselves, just a very simple regulation. In your experience with the teachers that you work alongside with as well, what's the response that teachers have of their role of also fostering strong mental health? Do you work, are you in a population where there are some teachers who want to better understand your practice to make sure to potentially bring alignment to that in their work as instructors and or do you find yourself sometimes in situations where people are referring students exclusively to you or your team and they're not putting as much of a premium on mental health or is it more of a less a mixed bag I think it's mostly positive I think most teachers really are supportive of it and they want to help I think sometimes it gets into the weeds of like the teachers thinking that they should be doing more and not just referring to us when we can really just take over and like it allows the teachers to have more of a firm boundary. I think that that can sometimes be hard, Um, you know, especially with teachers and younger kids in classrooms, like they have that connection. The teacher is their trusted adult, the teacher is their person. And so the teacher wants to be the one to step in and fix the things. And sometimes they need to recognize, you know what, I need to stay in my lane essentially and, you know, allow the student to, of course, talk to the teacher and have that moment, but at the same time, recognize when it's time to say, okay, this problem is bigger than something that we can handle in this classroom situation right now. And you need to go down to a counselor and spend more time 
digging deeper into this and spending more time working on a solution to this problem. So I think most of the teachers that I work with have good intentions and good hearts and really want to do the best for their kids and sometimes find that they care almost a little too much, as bad as that is to say, but like there's a point where you have to recognize that it's it's time to refer. You know, off air, we were talking about, we realized we're roughly around the same age. When you think of your own respective experience as a student, and actually full disclosure, we did, we recently did an episode where we interviewed students and we asked them, you know, what are your, what do you hope to primarily see from a teacher? You know, what's one of the most important things? And in some shape or form, and I talked to a college student and a middle school student, and in both cases, they talk about mental health, that when it's not present that their teacher cares about their mental health or their well-being, it's a major turnoff for them. And I just share that data point to you to, A, provide just additional validity for the work that you're doing, but also acknowledging that I think to any student, this is something that at least in the 21st century, that people are aware of, that students want to find value. But to my original question, what feels different now when you formerly were a student, at least in that setting as in middle school, right? to where you are now, like where, what has felt different about the intentionality of the recognition of the value of mental health? Like, can you put yourself back in the shoes of, of Jane at 13, 14 years old and how different education seems to be with its, is with its eye toward mental health? Yeah, I think there's definitely um, more noticing of students who are struggling. Like, whereas when I was in school, um, it was more of like, oh, well, that's just the shy, quiet kid or that kid just, you know, flying under the radar and that's okay and it's fine. And now we have students um, in my meetings with my grade level team, we talk about students who we consider to be potentially flying under the radar and we want to pull them out. We want to say, you know what, this kid seems to be struggling. It's not the kind of issue where it's like high level and they need super, super support. But, you know, I've noticed that this kid was having a couple bad days in a row and it just isn't, they're not acting like their normal selves. And could you just please check in with them? And then that, that brings that kid to my attention. And then I can check in with the kid and just let them know that I'm here. If you need support, I'm here. If you want to talk, you know, I'm a safe place. You can come down here if you need me. And also lets the kid know. And I will usually tell the kid, Hey, your teacher noticed that you were acting different. And the kids are always like, oh, my teacher is aware of me. My teacher knows these things. And that's something that I don't feel like I got as a kid. But also, I don't even know if we had a counselor in my school, in my middle school. I maybe, I don't know. I would never have seen that person ever. So I want to say there wasn't one, but maybe there was. But one of the things that my school does really well is focus on what we call trusted adults which, you know, we didn't coin that term, but it's like a big term that we use very frequently in our education system in my school is the term trusted adult. And it's just every kid, we want to make sure that they can identify a trusted adult in the building, whether that is a counselor, a teacher, a principal, whoever, just somebody where if you're having a problem, something's going wrong for you that day, you know, one person at the very least that you can go to and say, I'm struggling and I need help. I want to dive back into, you mentioned before about sometimes you've experienced families that don't necessarily, that don't value, you know, the work of, of an emphasis around mental health and sometimes want to keep it in the space of academics, obviously not getting into any individual student cases or names. Have you ever had situations? Well, in general, what's the policy of 
are students able to work with you all in confidence when their family doesn't necessarily want them to seek out or is not um, promoting the work that you're all doing or doesn't seem really on board with their students' mental health being an emphasis in the, in school? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we definitely have students who not what I wouldn't say take advantage of the situation, but they're certainly like trying to get out of a certain class. Like maybe they always want to see me during math class because that's a struggle. And so I'll pick up on those patterns. And usually at that point, I'll call home and say, Hey, I've noticed that your kid seems to be struggling the most during this class. And they really want to talk to me. And the parent usually at that point is like, well, I really want them in class. And so we'll come up with a time. Maybe, you know, I pull the kid out of gym class, if that's something that the parent finds acceptable, or maybe I meet with them before school for 10 minutes or something like that. So typically the most pushback I find is not so much coming, the kids coming to me, it's me referring out. If I say, Hey, I think your kid might benefit from some more in-depth therapy. And then that's where it stops. The family says, no, I can't do that. That's not really that important. Like, Oh, we would love to, but it's not high priority. And a lot of that could be financial or transportation issues, things like that. But at the end of the day, the seeking out mental health outside of the school is a barrier for a lot of families and is not necessarily a priority. Something we like to do on the show is about, while not easy, practical strategies um, for educators that are listening to this program. And we've had parents, we've had teachers, it's a growing audience, <laughs> but we're, you know, we're fortunate enough to have people in the, in the ed space, you know, that listen, we've seen situations where, and you said this yourself about being back in middle school and not necessarily, you know, knowing if there's a school counselor available. In situations where either the role is not where it should be, or that person is not as readily available, or the person may not exist in that particular school, what are some ideas or strategies you'd offer to schools to be more aware of students within classrooms, to be able to focus on their humanity, their mental health, in situations where maybe there's not as much of an investment from a district, or it's not as really presented as a priority to teachers? I think big pieces of this are just interpersonal relationships. One of the things that I've noticed, especially since the COVID years, is that we're running into students, especially younger kids, who just don't know how to communicate with other people, be that their peers, adults, etc. They just don't know what to do. If something goes wrong, that's the end. They melt down, they can't function, they can't solve the problem themselves. So I would say as much as possible, focus on communication skills, focus on having a conversation and do a lot of modeling. A lot of students have never seen a healthy boundary or a healthy communication between people who are upset with each other. So a teacher who can say to a student, listen, you know, we're, I know we're having a rough day today. You and I aren't really clicking. Um, you've been acting up in my class, but here are some things I am looking for, for from you. And here are some things that I would like to see you do. And I could do these things better too. And just kind of showing the students how to have a a conversation about something that is hard, about something that doesn't feel comfortable. Because a lot of times that's where the kids shut down is as soon as it's uncomfortable, they don't want to talk about it anymore. And for them to be able to see the adults in their lives having those conversations, it's really, really important. So I would say focusing on that interpersonal relationship is the biggest deal. And then showing them how to handle conflict. Because 
there's going to be conflict forever. I have kids that come to me and say, I absolutely hate this teacher. I don't want to go to this class. I won't get along with this teacher. And I say, you know what? I'm really sorry, but that is kind of what we deal with in life. You know, we're always going to have people that we don't get along with, that we don't like, that rub us the wrong way, but we have to find a way to deal with it. So what are some things that we can do to get you through today? What are some things we can do to get you through tomorrow? How about next week? Things like that, where we're just accepting that, okay, we don't like this person. That's fine. We don't have to like that person, but we do need to get along with them and we need to be respectful. I'd be remiss to not talk about maybe one of the biggest differences you know, from us as middle schoolers to now in the world of technology and the role of social media. What role has that played in, in your estimation on students' mental health? Does it often, or, or at all, does it come up in conversations you're having with students as a, as a factor in where a student's mental health may project to or what's helping to foster positively or negatively? Definitely. It is a huge piece of it for sure. No question. When I was in the high school areas, it was very much like, you know, the social media aspect of just the celebrities and seeing that and the comparison in middle school, I'm noticing that it's more, it's not, not about that, but it's more about the connections with other people and the communication that they have with other people. And one of the biggest issues is that things just don't stay at school. Like when we were kids, if you had a fight with your friend or you were mean to somebody, you left school and no one talked about it in front of you or in front of anybody else that you knew about until the next day. Or if it happened over the weekend or it happened on a Friday, you had the weekend to get over it. Now these kids are going home and talking to each other about it on Snapchat. They're making TikToks about it. They're filming each other secretly, even though our school does not allow phones. Obviously, you know, some things slip through the cracks, but you know, we're having issues where students are making posts about each other and sending mean Snapchats to each other and talking about each other in mean ways outside of school that are then bleeding into school. So maybe we're not allowed to have phones in school, but of course they've heard about it. They've been told, oh, so-and-so posted this mean thing about you. And now that's the only thing they can think about all day. And at least, as I said, when we were kids, some of that stuff disappeared. Like you could walk away from it and know that, okay, maybe people were talking about you at the sleepover this weekend, but at the end of the day, no one's posting anything about it online and it will go away. And now it really not, doesn't necessarily go anywhere. It just sits. You mentioned, you, you just mentioned a moment ago about the difference, the role social media plays, or at least what the focus is you know, between high school and middle school audiences. Oh, across the board, you've worked in both settings. What seems to be some of the biggest differences between middle school students and high school students when it comes to understanding or seeking support around their mental health? Um, so kind of hard to say in some regards, because the high school that I worked at was a specialty high school. It was not, it was alternative. So I had students who were dealing with a lot of other issues besides just your typical high school issues. So those kids were pretty aware of their needs and what they needed for support. Whereas I think not all high schoolers really feel that way. Um, so I think when, with my particular group of high schoolers, they knew what to ask for in certain ways, whereas in other ways they didn't. And, but the high school that I worked at, at being in an alternative school had different resources and had different focus. So I think in that regard, there were a lot of really good things about that school that were, was providing support that these students weren't necessarily going to get at a traditional high school. Um, and then 
in middle school, I work at a more traditional middle school now, and it's very much very focused on the social emotional learning. Like we push it a lot. We talk about it a lot. It's always out there. The counselors are always visible, things like that. And so I think the students now have more of an understanding that, okay, if I'm struggling, if I'm having high levels of anxiety today, or I just, you know, can't function, I know I can go ask for support. I know I can go to the counselor. And I think that that's been a a pretty big shift over the last maybe five to 10 years of just students not being, not ashamed, but not feeling weird about asking for it. So I think several years ago, before this push was so big, students were kind of like, oh, I'm being called down to the counselor's office. I can't tell anybody, you know, this is kind of shameful. And now it's like, hey, go to the counselor, see you later. Like everybody does it. It's not a big deal. It's not weird. You know, it's the kids just talk about it openly. And I think that that's a thing that's kind of happening with a lot of issues that students are having. They're much more open about talking about how they're feeling. They're much more open about being like, oh, I'm having a bad day and I need to just come and sit here and cry. You know, not everybody, obviously, but I think it's less stigmatized. To say thank you for the work that you do would be underselling it. Um, it's, it's, it's important work. It's something that as a country, it's great to see that we're putting more emphasis Um Unfortunately, we're not there yet, just in my estimation about, you know, it's still come down to test scores and college and all these things are, while important, as we had our students most recently come on and tell us that it's not what they value most in the relationship that they have with a teacher, what they hope a teacher recognizes from them. So I'm just glad for you and the team that the work that you all do at your school because it certainly feeds the needs of what students are truly looking for. So thank you a for that, but thank you for coming on and sharing your story and, and just providing some ideas for folks that may not necessarily have the benefit of the work that you're doing, but can at least be, you know, be able to be a further advocate for their, for their students. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. And hopefully I made some sense. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know, what's easy. Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. I said at the start that the conversation of mental health goes in some interesting places now about the role it plays in schools. And, you know, while we won't play it, the clip here, we've heard detractors of this um, that question its role. And as you all heard in these conversations, it's needed. At the end of the day, mental health gets into the fact that we're talking about children, we're talking about learners in classrooms, but we're talking about individual people. And if I weren't talking about children, if I was talking about teachers, I'm still in the same space of recognizing that people want to be felt and heard. And that is a a major shift in what we've recognized in the past. I know in the conversation I had with my my friend Jane, and we talked about for her, if she obviously worked in middle school, to step back into being middle school Jane, what would be different for her as opposed to the students that she serves? And you know, like any of us, and Jay and I are about the same age, it's just a different world. No one gave space to the conversation of mental health. And as a country, as a, as a 
global society, we've we're on the right track with recognizing that no different than the way you work and condition your body for it to perform effectively. The mind has to also be a part of that as well. With that, I go to Stacy. I mean, so many things come to mind really, but one thing that really stands out to me is, you know, and the New York times has been really great about doing some series on mental health, particularly for adolescents. And it really um, brings me back to a few years ago in my family, we've had various mental health challenges and they didn't always end well uh, for, for us. Um, my brother, for example, uh, died and uh, from an overdose, but really he was self-medicating with, with, uh, with drugs and didn't often get the help that he needed. And so my dad, who has been raising, you know, my niece alongside my mom was really worried when he saw signs of some depression and um, mostly depression and was really kind of floundering a little. So I was sending him some of those articles that were coming out in the times and, and he was able to really ground himself and say, right, this is something that's happening. It's widespread. We're not alone in this. And it really helped to find action and, you know, have to say happily right now, you know, my niece is now a freshman at Temple University. And so she graduated and they found the pathway for her. Um, when I remember just, you know, a few years ago, there was a lot of wondering where would this lead to? Yeah. And thank you first, Stacy, for sharing and for being vulnerable with us and with our listeners. Um, I think uh, there's just so much here we could talk about and it's necessary to talk about. One of the things that I'm thinking about is we've talked a lot about the young people and the necessity for them. I'm thinking about the folks who are doing the caring work. Um, I'm thinking about the fact that there was an article that came out earlier this week on Chalkbeat that said that uh, New York City Department of Education lost 2,000 teachers this year, the most that it has in a decade. Um, and as you all heard from our guest, Sequoia, she spoke about um, the impact that the pandemic has had and how issues that once existed are now exacerbated as a result because young people have lost family members from COVID, have been sequestered and then unable to transition um, as successfully as you might like into the social setting of a school. Um, and it's a challenge for them. And I you know, have to understand as well that it's a challenge for the adults as well. Not only managing their own mental health and the impact that all of this is having on them, but also being in a space of being a caring professional, right? Being in the space of having to provide this care. And so it makes me think about uh, the extent to which the adults also need to be reaching out to one another and checking on one another and making sure that we're making space for ourselves and holding us ourselves accountable for taking the time that we need to be well so that we can then support the young people uh, in doing the same and modeling it for them so that they know what it looks like and they know that it is okay to say, hey, I'm not okay you know, um, and know that you'll have a community of people, even if it's just one person to support you if and when that happens, right? So 
I um I'm left again just in awe of the work that happens in school buildings. Um, and just really shout out all of our folks who are in these, and that includes teachers and school leaders who are in these caring professions and, um, encourage you all out there that may be listening to take some, take some time for yourself. Thank you for listening to the educate us podcast, subscribe to the show available wherever you listen to podcasts and please, please, please leave us a review or comment wherever you can. We want to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, or just want to be part of the conversation, email us at theeducateusshow at gmail.com. This has been a production of Leon Media Network. I'm Nick Saveri. I'm Patrice Fenton. And I'm Stacey Schultz. We'll see you next time.